Hi folks, this is Jack Spears here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. At times getting tougher than anything else. Today is August 28, 2013, and it's a Wednesday. Uh, and it's going to be episode 1196, which is going to be updates on future TSP endeavors and homesteading plans. Um, I'm going to talk to you guys more about the uh, potential eco-permanent libertarian anarcho-capitalist community um, and all of the great things that I've seen it and the few things that I see as being the, the things that are most in the way. And it's really one thing that's more in the way than anything else, and it's the one thing no one seems to be worried about, I guess, but me. Everybody seems to be worried about the politics of the situation, which I think can be handled with a very clear agreement for people going in. Um, I also want to talk to you about some of the things we've been doing here on property this year, things that have worked, things that haven't worked so well, some changes and adjustments we have to be making. Uh, an update on our Freedom Ranger chicken project. Their birds are going to be three weeks old, uh, I think, Thursday or Friday this week, and they're doing well, most of them. We did have some losses, I believe, due to heat and believe it was from pushing them too fast. And, you know, also the time of year we decided to start them so that we could have them ready for our workshop. I'm going to talk about some workshops coming up. And I want to talk about some of the, the future potential for the TSP community and brand. And because I am beginning with the last couple of weeks to really see some potential here, um, I also feel like there was a lot of negativity going around that I feel like we're beyond now. Um, you know, if you want to know how I got beyond one of the big pieces of negativity, I, I'm not going to say it in public, but if you email me, I'll, I'll tell you privately. Um, it kind of made a problem person go away. And, you know, then we had a little problem with somebody else that I think, you know, I'm still trying to bury the hatchet with, but it's up to them whether that happens or not. But uh, I've also decided that going forward, I just don't care anymore as long as somebody doesn't put out something completely uh, disfactual that in some way is damaging to the brand or the business. I'm pretty much going to ignore uh, people that are you know, best called haters from this point out, um, and I feel good about that. And it's letting me see a larger image of what TSP can become. And on top of that, the success we had with MT Knives and the initial reaction to floating this idea of a lease-based uh, eco-village, something I'm now calling, at least in concept phase, perma-ethos that I'll tell you more about later, um, shows me there's huge potential in this audience that's vastly untapped. And the potential for us to do things that have never been done before in ways that they've never been done before and to be agreeable to all parties involved so that somebody that's investing in something can get their money back plus a return of profit for a long time. Um, but nobody that's on the buying end, let's say, feels used. In fact, they feel like they've gotten better value um, than, you know, than they could get anywhere else. And that's what I've, I've built. Every successful business I've ever been built has been built on that model. That, that, you know, I'll take the biggest risk, um, I'll make the biggest commitment, I'll do everything I can, and I'll make sure that whatever's put out, the person paying for it feels like I couldn't have got this anywhere else at this price, and I'm very pleased with it. And I think there's ways to do that in big ways and little ways, and uh, I think there's a lot of potential that's untapped in our community, and I want to talk to you about that today as well. Before I do, though, can we go ahead and take care of our sponsors of the day? How about BulkAmmo.com? Hey, if you have a gun, it's only useful if you have ammo to put in it. I remember 
Uh, a guy that put a community together that didn't quite work out called Almost Heaven, Bo Greitz. A guy did a documentary on it, and he talked to this guy that had a gun, and he said uh, he was talking to him about his guns and how, uh, how he was a uh, big-time libertarian and defending his property and things like that. And he says they eventually got into a discussion where he said, uh, he said so, in, so in, the, in the 60s you were a hippie. And you put flowers in guns, and now you, now you, you know, now you have these guns. You know, he goes, well, I, I got older and I got smarter, and I figured out it was a lot smarter to put bullets in guns than it was to put flowers in them. And uh, there's some wisdom there. You have a gun without ammo, you have an overpriced club. Bulk ammo has great availability on all the common calibers, some of the best pricing, lightning fast shipping. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. Next up today is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival, survival podcast sponsor, the first people that stepped up and officially sponsored the show as full-time sponsors. They do a great job for our audience. They have an incredible discount program, the Discount Buyers Club. It's $49 once, and then you get discounts on everything they sell for the rest of your life. If you are a member of the Member Support Brigade with the Survival Podcast, though, you get that membership for free. That effectively makes your first year of membership in my program a dollar. And then you get great deals at Safecastle. And they have everything you can think of for your prepping needs, from long-term food storage, water filtration, tactical, practical, you name it, they've got it, safecastle.com. Uh, next up, want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. That forum seems to, uh, to, to be doing fairly well, given I haven't put a lot of work into it, honestly, other than setting it up and some basic management. Uh, I'll say this again because I haven't heard from anybody yet. I'm looking for someone with experience managing Simple Machines forums uh, that would like to dedicate some time to walking the freedom and make it what it can really be. Uh, you know, something along the lines of a couple hours a day dedicated to actually, you know, building this up. I believe it's a forum we can definitely monetize uh, six to eight months from now. And that person would be a partner with me in that monetization and would actually take the lion's share of whatever monetization came out of it. But for that forum to fulfill its destiny, it needs a captain of that ship, and I'm a captain of enough ships. I can't really get over there and captain it on a daily basis. I need someone to do that, and I'm willing to work out an equitable deal with them. So if you're interested in that and you have experience running and managing forums, um, and uh, and walking to freedom means something to you, whether you're walking or staying, I don't care, but if it really means something to you, like you believe in the mission and you have the skill set, then I want to talk to you about running that forum for me. Last but not least, do consider joining my member support brigade. You do that. You uh, help support this show at 18.3 cents an episode, and you will get benefits that exceed the value of your investment. Uh, that's, again, how I run a business. So uh, there's discounts to over 40 vendors. If you're buying stuff from the tactical to the practical, from gardens to guns and anything in between, I've got discounts for you that will put the money back in your pocket. If you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, and that means active duty or prior service on any of those professions, you actually qualify for a discount that will save you even more money on an already great deal if you email me, what's the word, before, not after you join, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, put service discount in the subject line, and in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or what you did if you're prior service, and I'll get a discount code back to you, and instructions on how to sign up, and the, you know, telling you how the discount works and everything. Okay, so that wraps up the housekeeping. Let's get into this idea that I have um, now I'm calling it, at least in concept, I don't know if it'll be the final name for it, but I really like the name I came up with, Permaethos. So perma is to be permanent, to last, to endure, to be sustainable. And ethos 
is the ideals that characterize a community. So it would be a permanent community based on common ideals. Those ideals would be very libertarian in nature, like liberty, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, common exchange of value among men. But we would also be true to the concepts of permaculture, building a sustainable system designed to last, to endure, to be permanent, to be sustainable. Following the ethics and the prime directive, we would care for the earth. We would do nothing that would harm the earth. It doesn't mean we won't cut some trees down or dig some holes or use some track hoes and things like that. It won't be greeny-weeny, but we'll do things in a sustainable manner so that we preserve the land that we're leaving behind for our children and their children. Care of people. Nothing that we do would harm people, except if we had to defend ourselves, and that's a different situation. But our day-to-day -day activities would all be designed to do no harm to anyone, especially the members of our community or visitors to our community. Last but not least, return of surplus. This community is designed right from the beginning to meet the third ethic, the real third ethic, not the rewritten third ethic. Redistribution of surplus would be taking the community's uh, profit and the community's uh, surplus and sending it elsewhere. This is designed to put the surplus right back into the community, right back into the people that live in the community's hands, right back into the investors' hands as well. An equitable permaculture business with an ethos of individuality, liberty, and freedom. Pretty awesome. That's why I came up with Perma Ethos. The last thing that makes something permaculture to me, there's three, four things you have to do. You have to meet each one of those ethics. And the last one is you have to meet the prime directive. And that prime directive in permaculture is the only ethical decision we can make is to take responsibility for ourselves and for that of our children. I think building something like Perma Ethos, there's no way we could better take responsibility for ourselves and for that of our children. Um, I've had a lot of feedback on it. I want to give you guys kind of an update. Uh, I've had at least 50, I haven't even done a count, but probably more now people said, you know, flat out, if you could do the lease at the price you said, which was like, you know, a $1,000 purchase and $200 a month, I would be in. Not, not, I would like to be in. I'd like to know, like, at least 50 have said, done. You don't, you don't even, I don't care where it is. I know what you're doing. It's awesome. I'll make it work. So I know there's enough there because we haven't even laid it out. We haven't explained everything yet. We haven't found a piece of property. We haven't laid out a master plan. We haven't really talked about all of the things that it would do. And there's that much swell. I know that we could now find a place, set it up to do a hundred leases and put the people there on day one. And that is wonderful. Now, not all of them would live there and that, opens up some other concerns, but we would have the money. And that is um, that's something that's almost hard to believe, that, that we have that much reach and power now within TSP. Um, there's a lot of people talk about doing things like this, and most of them fail miserably. I think in some instances it's because they try too hard to please everybody, and I think in other instances they try too hard to front-end the money too much off of the people doing the purchase. I think the bigger you go with this up to a, a certain point, the easier it gets. Okay, so uh, I have no concern about the ability to find the people to come in and buy into the concept on the leasee side. On the investor side, I've had 15 people that I would character, characterize as serious investors uh, state that they can absolutely 
hit that 25K minimum threshold as an owner in the corporation that would own the property. Several of them for significantly more. Of course, this is all pending a complete understanding, the contract, shareholder agreement, and things like that, which, of course, we would do. But from floating at one time in one show in less than one week and getting that kind of a response, um, if you looked at that, and again, there's more than that, but I would say there's 15 that I would characterize as dead serious. Um, let's say that 30% of those wash um, without looking for any additional ones at 25K a piece, 10 people is a quarter million, plus my 25K is 275, plus I've got my old business partner, Neil, who I bounce the idea off of and I'll be meeting with next week, who would be a fabulous asset, uh, who said, I'm in, mate. Uh, so he would probably be a significantly larger investor. So I, right now, looking at this, see no reason why with a consortium of around 10 investors I can't probably raise about a half a million dollars. That puts us in a property in the neighborhood of 300 to 400 acres based on some preliminary shopping that I've done, window shopping online. That puts us in the neighborhood of being able to do maybe 200 leases. That is very, very encouraging and having a huge common area and some other things I'll talk about in a minute. My biggest actual concerns uh, on this property are two, and only one's asked about one of them. Uh, the first one is how it affects a person's ability to acquire financing to build a home. The fact that they don't actually own the land, but they have a 99-year lease. Um, given that the, the corporation will have free title to the land, in other words, the land will be absolutely purchased, not financed. Uh, I will do whatever I have to to bring enough investors in to make that happen. Um, and it's a free and clear title on the land between the leasee and the leaser and an agreement that the land cannot be sold or if it was sold and transferred, that the lease cannot be violated. It would be subject to new ownership following the agreement made with existing landholders. Um, it's about as stable as any piece of property could ever be. So I, I, I don't see it being a huge problem, but it might be. I, I just don't know. Um, then the next thing is, for people that want utilities, conventional utilities, I see this as being a place where you're not going to worry about sewer anyway. Um, there'll be people that do composting toilets. There'll be people that do a septic system, what have you. There'll be people that do a leach drain field. It'll be up to people, and hopefully we can figure out some ways to create some commonalities of waste disposal and things like that. But I don't see that being a huge issue, especially locating this. And this absolutely has to be located in an unincorporated portion of a, of a county. This has to be a place where there's no city and there's no town coming in with their bullshit that you're only dealing at the county level and above, and basically in these areas at the county level and above, as long as you're not committing felonies or violating state law, they don't care. There's not a lot of there's no code enforcement. And that's something very good about Texas, that we can find a lot of places like that. So that is not a huge concern for me. Water, I think we're going to have lots of people with lots of creative ways to deal with water situations, roof catchments and things like that. But if you want a well, you put a well in. I can see no reason that, you know, two people that are, you know, next to each other, if they decide to want to share a well, wouldn't be able to, you know, buy their own expense and, and do that. So if you want a well, you have somebody put a well in. Uh, that's not a concern. Electricity is the concern. Uh, getting people electricity and phone is, is, is a concern. Uh, getting electricity to a property this size is not going to be an issue. Having a common area with power is not going to be an issue. Um, because of that, I believe that we can then 
uh, as a corporation uh, enact in, in with a, uh, a carrier like AT&T or, or whoever uh, a contract on a T1 service, and we won't have any problems doing that. It's hard to do residentially sometimes, but this will be, would be a commercial account. Uh, with significant assets and would be no problem to get uh, you know, a line of credit with AT&T. It's not really a line of credit. It's you pay your bill, but you're on a hook for three years, usually on a contract. Uh, that would allow us to bring in super high-speed Internet, probably at least a bonded T1. Don't worry about what that means. It's basically two T1s put together, which would be enough to provide decent Y-Max Internet service for the property. And as more people used it, we could turn it up a little bit and, and order more bandwidth. So I think we could put internet service into just about anywhere with that model. So that doesn't concern me. Cellular service probably won't be a problem in most areas in Texas, even these outerlying areas. So whether or not people can get landline phone service, I don't know, but at least cellular and, and wireless internet would be available. So that's not, it's, it's the power. And how do you deal with power utility and power utility easement and things like that on a large property like this with a distributed, almost subdivision style of, of, of properties? Especially given that some people are going to be like, I don't want power because I'm not living there yet. I'm not developing. I'm just buying as an investor for right now, and it's there. I'll show up and camp in a tent or an RV, and some people will be like, I want a power pole there. Um, I don't know whether it's going to be something that we can have people just simply you take care of it yourself or if we have to do certain things as a company. And as we figure that out, and this is what I want to get to, there's certain things that may be necessary that may alter the numbers I gave originally. I am so low compared to what Xavier Hawk's doing. I heard through the grapevine that if you want to build a house on, on his, his eco-village, that your purchase price of the lease is $23,000. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to you know, do that to anybody. I, I think that with a project this size, we get a scale, economy of scale that he can't touch. But it may, it may be that you know, a lease purchase initial cost is $2,500, and instead of $200 a month, it's $250. I don't know. In the end, I just hope that no one feels like, well, he's breaking his deal. I'm not breaking a deal because I haven't made a deal yet. I'm floating numbers, and I'm running numbers. But in the end, I'm a business person, and I know that I have to deliver what's promised And the way I do that is because of these words that Darby Simpson said when he talked about farming. Excel never lies. So when you run numbers and say this is the cost, this is how much can come in from investors, and this is the cash flow front end and residual necessary to maintain this development, the cost is the cost is the cost. right? And it might mean telling investors, hey, we said 48 to 60 months payback period. It's going to be a 60-month payback period. Flat, or it's going to be 72 months. No, no. It all depends. And it may be it may end up saying, you know what, a lease is going to cost $3,000 and $200 a month. I don't know. It changes significantly the capital available for initial investment. It also has a lot to do with the property. If the property is such that it's easy to do some of the initial infrastructure and it costs less, then we can. This is basically a cost plus model. Right, where the majority of the surplus is eventually returned to the community itself. Because here's the reality. In the initial stages, the investors will be taking a very small portion of the revenue as part of their payback amateurization. After they're paid back, you're looking at, again, four to six years, I'm thinking. Then they're actually going to take a little bit more. But by that point, the community will be highly developed. And I see it as being an 80-20 or 30-70 split at that point. 
And it could be a very good annuity for the investor, not to mention they would have their own lot. They have the option to buy a second lot, I'm thinking, depending on the size of the property. Um, and they have all of the community involvement, and they have a vote on the board of ownership that makes final decisions for the community. That's what I want to get to as well. This would be a benevolent dictatorship. And I, I think it's very important that people understand the good and, well, I wouldn't say there's any bad to it at all, except some people will perceive it as bad. The way it would work is that every leasee, every person that actually has a permanent lease on the property, would have a voice in the community because they're permanent. All right, So temporary people that come to live in a shack or a hut or a yurt for three months to experience it don't get that voice because they're not an owner. See, I see you even as a leasee, I see you as an owner in the community because you've made a permanent commitment. 99-year lease, people are worried about a 99-year lease. It, does it strike you odd that you would worry about that? You'll be dead before your lease expires. Stop worrying about the fact that it's a lease. It's a legal structure. It's designed to provide certain things. So, in fact, most of us, I think, in 99 years, we would even say, many of us would say our children would likely be dead. My son, if he were alive, would at that point be 114 or something like No, 123. So this would be something that, you know, by the time the lease expired, my grandson would have to worry about. And some of us, our grandchildren, are not going to be here 99 years from now. Right. If you're going to have a grandchild here 99 years from now, they're either going to be a centurion, they make it to 100, or they haven't been born yet. So the time horizon, I think, is important to get in your head and stop. You know, somebody said, well, what about Hong Kong? It went back and come on now. This is not a country. okay? And, and this is the thing. There's no reason that we as an ownership board wouldn't make the lease as guaranteed renewable at 99 years because we're going to be dead. So we don't care. It's going to be up to future generations, hopefully, to have the baton passed down to realize what they've been granted. And we will be their forefathers. And just like this nation, if they don't value the gift their forefathers gave them and they lose it and squander it, we did what we could. And we have to be at peace with that. But the board of ownership, no matter how much you invest in this corporation, I'm saying you get one vote on ownership decisions. So it's an equal board. You get a greater dividend payout by your equity in the corporation, but the shares are all non-voting, basically, and there's one voting share to each person so that no one can just come in with a bunch of money and monopolize the board or buy out other members down the road and steer the community off track or things like that. So one vote per investor on the board of decision-making. And the board of decision-making is hopefully to be used very, very seldom. Basically, it would work like this. The, the, we'll have to have someone managing this community, someone that's paid on a salary to manage this community, uh, community manager. And I have some people in mind for that, by the way, that are pretty amazing people, if they would be up for it. And that person would have a staff, uh, some part-time workers, some volunteers, etc., that would look at what the community needs to do this month and say, here's the cash flow this month. And we have... $40,000 that we can invest in the community this month. Here's the things I think we need to do with it. And they would bring that to the board of the board of ownership. And if the board looks at it and goes, it makes sense, do it. But it would just be brought in front first to make sure. And anybody would, that, that has concerns about it would be able to tell their concerns to the ownership board, who would in the end say, we've heard your concerns, this is what we're doing. Why? They own the property. And in the end, that's what needs to be understood. The board of ownership, the investors, are the owners of the property. So, of course, they get that final decision. Um, I think this makes things a lot simpler. 
and I'm going to get to why it shouldn't concern you about what you want to do on your own piece of land in just a second, because we're going to handle that with a contract. Um, but when it comes to do we put in a big building this time so we can start bringing students in, or do we put in uh, two more ponds? Well, what do we need more right now? Do we have any ponds? We have no ponds. Maybe we're going to put in our first two ponds. Maybe if we already have water on the property and we have that plan long term, but we put that building in, well, then now I can run a much better uh, class event type thing here and we can bring students in and instead of paying for that those next ponds that we're going to develop out of the community coffer we can bring in outside revenue through the company and enhance the community faster so these are business driven decisions right and that's that should make every and, and, and understand that you're dealing with people at the investor level that have that business conscious Right? They have the permaculture ethic or they wouldn't be here. And if they don't, they're not coming. Cause I get, I'm the decider. Uh, once this is done and everybody's invested, we all have an equal voice. But whether or not I take the investor or not, that's my decision. And if I have, you know, trust me that if I have an investor that I think is in this only for money and doesn't care about the good of the community, they don't get to be an investor. I don't need their money. So I'm not going to a bank. I'm sure I could get financing from a, a, a conventional lender to do this. I, I really am. Uh, especially with, if I could just go in with a business plan and go, here's all the people ready to spend money with me. You, you get money thrown at you that way. But I don't want that. I don't want somebody that doesn't care about the goals and the ethics and the ethos. Okay? This is, this is about a common idealism. So that's how we would make decisions about the money. I think at some points we might actually say, you know what? We don't really need to do anything with 5K of this money this month. Let's bankroll it. And at some point, that bankroll might lead up to a point at the end of a year, you distribute it into the community, and leaseholders might get back their entire lease fee for the year. I'm not guaranteeing that. I'm saying a successful enough community would result in that. And that's something that a lot of business owners would go, oh, God, you're, that's, that's our profit. It's not our profit. Well, we're going to make a deal. And I don't know, again, I don't know if it's a 70-30 split. I don't know if it's a 50-50 split. We have to run the numbers and let, let math make this decision for us. But once we've made the deal, the deal is done. And if the deal is the community gets this money, and then interesting things start to happen. If we can start to generate that kind of a revenue stream, we start creating the opportunity to employ our own people. So somebody might become... A store manager, because this would, place would produce food that people would drive out of their way to come get. And you need somebody to sit there and sell eggs and things like that. And we might pay that person a wage out of the community. And the community starts to become self-sustaining, not just from the standpoint of food and water and energy, but from a standpoint of economics. And that's going to segue into the next part of this economics concept. So... I've had people already say, you know, you should just do an anarcho-capitalist community and everything's a, a bond of trust and the contracts are private and they're not filed with any state entity. And you know, No, we're not doing that. And I'll tell you why. Because we're talking about taking money from people and put it, capitalizing it into a concern that could become a target and subject to targeting by state or private entity through lawsuit. Okay? 
And the way you protect yourself in this society from that is a corporation with the proper insurances. And when I say insurances, I, I put the S on it because insurances are not just policies of insurance. So yes, you have a blanket umbrella policy that if some visitor comes there and hurts themselves, you're covered. And you also have a disclaimer that says if you hurt yourself, it's not our responsibility in the first place. right? And you have certain insurance in place. But there's also insurances that, you, that are business practices to keep you clean. So anytime money flows through that corporation, it does so above board, subject to all of the evils of the IRS. It's the cost of doing business in America. Some have said make it a nonprofit. I despise nonprofits. I am a business person. I make a profit. Profit is not evil. If you become a nonprofit, there are a whole list of things you have to be subjected to that a, a for-profit corporation does not have to be subjected to. I don't want those restrictions. Profit is fine. If you want your corporation to be non-profit and not be subject to non-profits, spend all your money inside your corporation and have zero profit at the end. There's a way to do that. I'm not interested in doing that either because I want investors to get a return. Right? This is business. And I've been saying for years what holds permaculture back is the belief that profit is evil. Profit is good when it's based on an honorable exchange between men. The reason it's done above board is so that the, this concern does not become subject to attack by the state. What I said to one person in an email was, the only thing I like, like less than a contract with the state is problems from the state. So you have this corporation. And that means that if somebody does work on the farm... Okay, that we have agreed that this job pays this much and these many hours are available. Who wants to do it? I want to show up and do that. Fine. This is your part-time job. That when that person finishes at the end of that week, we run a payroll with taxes and everything in it just like a regular payroll. That's how we run that. And we probably have no full-time employees, so we're not subject to Obamacare's bullshit. People are responsible for their own health insurance. I mean, that's that's the only way I see around that. And maybe eventually you get to a point where, you know, I think there's a certain number of full-time employees. And, you know, I, it, it's up to people whether they care about the fact that the government, you know, provides health insurance to them or not. I mean, that's, that's you know, not really a place I want to go. But I think you run a payroll. What Xavier does is, so you, you owe him a thousand bucks for renting a yurt uh, for three months. And if you do a thousand dollars worth of work, you're even. I don't like that because you've got a capital flow inside this corporate entity and you need to protect it. So you run that above board. Now, what does that mean about private exchange of value between men inside the community? I don't care. None of my business. Nobody's business. If you want to barter with dimes for the guy next to you who's an accountant for your own business, I don't care. I don't, it's not Just like if you're doing it on your own street, I don't care. It's not my business. So you have this umbrella corporate entity that protects this libertarian, anarcho-capitalist society inside of it. This is like Galt's Gulch, but we're not going to shut out the outside world. When we play in the outside world, we'll play by their rules, and inside our world, we'll play by our own rules. There's no reason this community couldn't have a let's program, uh, units of exchange, its own community currency that exchanges internally. And then externally, or for paying bills, there's an exchange rate, so to speak. That means we use capital cash to pay our bills, to pay AT&T for the Internet service. When somebody comes to buy something, we take cash. Somebody wants to buy something from you, not from the company, hey, libertarian community, you can run your own business. 
It's not my concern what you're doing. It really isn't. As long as it's not going to get anybody in trouble. It has to be legal. Sorry. It does. But if you are growing eggs in your own yard, you want to compete with the company store, so to speak, no one's going to stop you. You go, you go for it. Right? You want to sell plant. And I think there's a, tr there are so many revenue streams that can be built into this. Um, there's no reason this community couldn't have its own seed brand and, and have a seed business and have somebody employed in that business. There's no reason that we couldn't have a plant based business. Do you know how hard it is to find, um, Chinese water chestnuts? Do you know how easy they are to propagate? There, there's a whole business just in aquatic plants that's, I've checked. It's largely untapped. A small aquaculture system would not only provide aquatic plant vegetables for the community to use or to sell, but plants and cuttings and crumbs that could be sold out to society. That has to run through the company so that it's protected by the corporation. People think corporations are evil. No, many corporations are evil. The corporate apparatus is designed to protect the shareholders and the customers and the employees of the company. That's what it's designed to do. It's doing it right and doing it ethically that makes it work. And with as zero restrictions as possible, that's why you set up you know, a C-Corp, a true corporation, not an LLC with a limited life, not a nonprofit that the government gets to tell you how to run. How would life be for a leasee? Somebody that says, well, I want to lease this this acre over here, and we say that that on the plot, that one's available, that's yours, sign your contract, boom, done. Uh, and a guy says, well, I, I don't want to build on it. I have a great big army tent, and I want to come stay here for two weeks uh, every three months, and I'm just going to set up my tent and my grill and my little uh, teardrop trailer, and I'm just going to hang out and be part of the community. Maybe I'm going to come for the apple harvest or whatever, pecan harvest or whatever, uh, and that's what I want to do. Fine. Go ahead. I want to build a yurt. Go ahead. I want to build an earthship. Go ahead. I want the guy that runs the excavator to come over here and dig my hole so I can put my earthship in faster. Fine. Pay him. I mean, I mean that's, that's a, and you know what? You're going to pay him a lot less than you pay anybody else. The, we're, we're going to definitely want somebody with a lot of experience using heavy equipment and somebody that owns some already would be amazing. Just amazing to have as an, someone that lives on site. And that person, for the first five or six years, will never run out of work. Now, we'll pay him from the corporation to do things like build ponds and swales and put in food for us, right? But we won't pay him what we would pay some guy on a day rate that would have to bring the machine in every time. And we'll pay the cost of the repairs of his machine. That comes out of the community revenue stream. But the, the four-acre pond that goes in is for everybody there to use. Another revenue stream. Some part of the common area would be set aside with small housing, tiny houses, hut-based housing, yurts. I don't know what, but a significant number of them. These would be for people that say, I don't want to live there permanently, but I want to go live there for three months. Fine, it's $1,000 a month for that little place right there. Uh, you get to use all the community assets. Uh, there's community gardens. You can take some stuff from there. Go on about your way. Anything else you need to buy, you can buy right here from our members or you can go out into the main community and buy it. But this is how much this costs. That money is going, that's capital straight in to the community. And it's subject to the same payback ratios to the investors initially, and then the same dividend payout to the investors long term. So that becomes a revenue stream. There's, and there's so, and then, okay, now you end up with somebody that's basically a hotel manager that manages that little thing. It's probably not a full time job, right? These are real stable people. 
You know, they come in, they want to do three months. You know, you don't have uh, somebody going and cleaning their beds for them, right? They have to take care of that kind of thing themselves. But somebody that basically makes sure they pay their bills on time, sees to their concerns, tells them where things are, a little coordinator, 20-hour-a-week job, paid right out of the corporation. See how that works? The revenue supports the position, plus generates a profit. This is actually how you run business. I think people don't know how to run businesses anymore. This is turning into it, whether you do with this community or not, this is how you manage a business in a cash flow positive manner. What we have that no one else has ever tried to do this before has is an 85,000 headcount audience. 1% of 85,000 is 850 people. If 1% are willing to step up and make a significant contribution to what we want to do with this one project, eventually we need two projects because there's not room for 850 people here. And we can brand the hell out of Perma Ethos. I said my biggest concern is how do we manage the, the, the process of bringing in utilities for people. And it may not be a problem at all. It may be we put in a private system of roads. And it may be that if you want power, you contact the electric company, tell them you want power. And it may be that we can bring, we can trench in the primary infrastructure for the electric company and rebate it back. I don't know. There's lots of op options there. I've done underground construction uh, for a significant period of my life. So it's not like it's beyond my knowledge of what to do. And there's better people at it than me. And it's called hiring them. So... That's my only concern. Now, again, the other option is to make this, you know, a high-tech off-grid community and, and just say there is no power unless you create it for yourself. I don't know if that's smart or not. I think it's more sustainable. And, and my friends, long-term, there might be the option of a couple big-ass windmills and the community creating most of its own power for itself. But I think that's a long-term plan. But I think it's possible. It's even possible that eventually those wind machines would generate enough power for the community and possibly sell that power back to the grid because you can do that in this state. Or that a power company might be interested in putting in a small wind farm on the property and paying you for the power with power. I, I don't know. There's always options. That's just some things, but um, that would be my, my biggest concern for people. If we... Angle this towards the earth contact structure, though, then power needs go dramatically down because your biggest power need in Texas, of course, is air conditioning. And if we go with earth contact structures, um, a lot of your building material is the dirt that's there. And if we buy the right property and we have good equipment operators on site, maybe we need more than one or two then, uh, we might actually be able to do a lot of earth construction really, really fast. And bring the prices down on that. Now, financing for that, I don't know. But if I can find one group of investors, maybe I can find another. Just saying. So those are my thoughts on this. And again, I've had a lot of people, I want to see all the numbers. I want to know this detail. I've given you more today than I had when I started. Some of this I'm thinking through as I go. Final numbers, final pricing, we're months out. Months with an S before I know. Uh, like a timeline for like finding property and beginning this, I think is early 2014. Um, I know the money's there. I know the interest is there. Um, not something I want to try starting up in the middle of the holidays. But um, I've got some other people to talk to about this to ferret some things out. Uh, if you've ever worked uh, with any project similar to this, 
and can help me with understanding what we would need to do to bring power and utilities to people uh, with a leased land uh, environment, let me know. Because it might be that we just have every single site have a power pole and a phone pole. With that number of customers, we might be able to do things a little bit faster and get more cooperation with power and phone companies. Um, and maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, I want to go on to some other things that we've been doing here at our, our own little homestead, and some lessons we're learning that hopefully would eventually get applied to larger uh, projects like we've been talking about for 40 minutes now. Um, number one, the aquaponics system that I keep kind of talking about has, has progressed quite a bit. It's now composed of two uh, 470-gallon, six-foot round stock tanks, both sheltered by earth, uh, one down in the ground about a foot, the other sitting on the surface, but with a mound being formed around it as we speak. And then behind that second one is a, uh, a six-foot by two-foot uh, by two-foot oval tank that was going to be a reed bed that right now has it's full of water. It holds about 200 gallons of water, and it's got a couple uh, uh, green sunfish uh, out of a pond that, that survived the trip home that Josiah and I went fishing on, and uh, they're they're happy in there. And I'm I'm actually thinking about making the system far more of a deep water aquaculture style system than a flush and drain aquaponics system like I had planned. As I start looking at the area, I'm like, well, I could fit four more six-round uh, tanks in there or three eight-round tanks. And those are expensive, but to me, they're worth the investment. And as I'm playing around, we're playing around with some stuff now. We just took some pots, we filled them up with gravel, drilled some holes in them, and shoved some sweet potatoes in them. And they're growing. And I'm thinking, if we can, and I've looked at deep water systems where they have raft-based systems and the plants just sit there in the water floating. And this all seems like less potential points of failure to me. And, you know, we take cinder blocks and sit, stick them down in these tanks. And we take big, cheap pieces of two-foot-by-two-foot two floor tile. And we set that on top of the cinder blocks for our platform. We set these pots there. Uh, we, we, we've, we're experimenting now with growing chufa in the pots. Chufa is also known as earth almond. Uh, if that works, it's a great way to grow chufa. Number one, people worry about it becoming invasive in the south. It can. It's like it's a relative of nutsedge, which is a common weed. Um Two, though, when you pull it out of the ground, it's got dirt everywhere. Well, if it's sitting in a, an aquaponic-style growth medium and you pull it out of that, there's no dirt. It's just rinse it off, and there's your chufas, your chufa nuts. So we're thinking things like um, maybe some taro, uh, cattail, uh, chufa, Chinese water chestnut, and uh, doing more of an aquaculture-style system, which is a hell of a lot more stable and a whole, whole hell of a lot less to manage and a whole hell of a lot less things to clog up and, and go wrong. You don't have these deep gravel or pebble beds and things like this. You have shallow pebble beds at the bottom of, of certain tanks to act as a gravel filter. We could put a, 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 a spin filter, a centrifugal filter, at the end of this thing when we're done building it, and I could expand it up easily into the 3,500, 4,500-gallon range. And aqua systems become far more stable the larger they get. So, and right now, both, most of the fish in there are just goldfish and some minnows. And everything seems to be running incredibly well. And we'll see, because I've had aquariums before, and everything looks great one day, and the next day they crash. Haven't run a water test. Flying by the seat of our pants. Having fun with it. Um, sooner or later we'll do a, a workshop where it will be part of it, but I don't know that it will be the flush and drain plan that we had uh, with a siphon system and all. This is looking more and more practical 
to just have one pump pushing to the highest point and each set of tanks overflowing down to the next and recirculating. Uh, and, you know, eventually, once we get all the power lines run the way we want, uh, I'll put in a real simple Stephen Harris-style uh, inverter-based backup battery system where the batteries are being charged, but the pump's running off the, the inverter that's running off the batteries out in the shed, and that way if the power goes off, the system will have a certain amount of runtime, uh, And that'll be really simple to do. I've already made a decision. I am simply going to buy a second pump that's the exact same pump that's already in there and have it set up and ready to go. And if that pump ever fails, you just swap it. it. All the fittings will be the same. All the plugs, everything will just be the same. It'll be one point of failure, so one spare part. I'll probably buy two of them. They're not that expensive. Um, so I'm really enjoying that. Perhaps Josiah and I, maybe will shoot a little video. Maybe I'll just shoot some video with my iPhone and throw it on my YouTube channel. It's been a while since I've done that. So maybe I'll do that today. I'll just kind of walk you through what's happened so far and what we're going to do next. So uh, that's working pretty good. Um, planned workshops. Uh, a lot of you have been in touch with me because you're on the waiting list for the October workshop where we're going to be killing chickens and doing the urban uh, permaculture design. There's a little bit of me thinking about taking the chicken thing off of it. Um, I think the chickens will be close to slaughter weight around that time. I'm not sure that they will. And I'm thinking of maybe instead of doing a chicken slaughter workshop, uh, you know, people that show up on Wednesday will slaughter enough chickens for the workshop. And, you know, just to be able to feed people, but maybe not slaughter them all because they may not be to wait by then. Or we may just do it. We may just do it. Uh, I'm going to make that decision in the next couple days, and then I'm going to go ahead and start taking reservations for it. Uh, some of you have been worried about airfare. It's not September yet. This is going to be October 14th, I think is the first day, or 16th, 15th. Uh, your airfare is not going to go up or down uh, in the next day or two that far out. So... I will make a commitment to you guys that are on the waiting list. I will start sending out emails for registration uh, by Thursday. So by Thursday, I'll make this. And I, I think it's, we're going to go ahead and kill the chickens. Uh, I don't know that everybody is going to be able to do two chickens. We've had some losses. Uh, we've lost six birds, five in one night. And I believe it was the hottest day we had, and we lost in the heat. These birds should honestly be in a brooder today and going out on pasture tomorrow. They've been on pasture since their third day of life. And we wanted to see what would happen. And we knew we were going to lose some. Uh, we lost, uh, of the, the birds we lost, the, the sixth, well, actually we lost seven birds. We've lost seven birds. I ordered 50. The Katachi sent me 53. So we're down to 44 birds. Yeah, 44 birds. Is that right? I lost five. And then one is six. And then one more was seven. So, yeah. Uh, no, that's... Uh, wow. Sorry, guys. Uh, my mind just uh, went blank for a second. It's freaking 46. I don't know what the problem was. Maybe I'm thinking too much. Anyway, 46 birds are what we have left. If you know, if we end up with 40 out of it, I, I, I don't think it's going to go that low. Um, we've now got them in a 16-foot square. Uh, so 16 by 16 by 16. Uh, by 16, uh, made from the cattle panels like I ran the geese in. I seem a lot happy in there. We, we came up with a way to uh, give them cover with a tarp for shade. Uh, we even have a fan out there for them, uh, a livestock fan. So, uh, And we've got them in an area where they're going to have a lot of shade over the next few days, and they should be a lot hardier by the time they have to deal with sun. And we're almost to the point where we're going to go over that hump and stop having these 100-degree days. But we have a couple of them in the forecast coming this weekend. 
So we'll have to uh, take some extraordinary measures during uh, those couple days to make sure they stay alive. What we've been doing is putting great big bottles of ice out there for them. And they're pretty funny. Uh, you'll see, I saw one kind of, he like backed up to it and he like stuck his butt out and he put his butt against the bottle. And you can almost see him go, oh, this is cool. And then he like just pushed further up and just sat down there with his ass against it. And he seemed pretty happy after that. So that seems to get him to the hottest part of the day. Um, what would I do differently? I may do more conventional brooding in the future, but this time of year, it means bringing them in the house. Uh, brooding them in the garage or something, they're going to be just hotter, I mean, because the bake's in there. Um, I don't really know that I want them in the house. What I do, do know that I will do next year is when I run my fall birds, I will probably order them for delivery around September 15th. It's still warm enough that they could go outside right away, Uh, but it's not hot enough to, to freaking be as, as hard as it is on them. And this is the first time I've done this breed. I mean, I don't know if I'm pushing the breed beyond what it's intended to do either. So we'll learn. I may decide in the future to do more of a conventional heirloom breed for my meat birds. Um, I'm not raising these for market. So I don't, I'm not really worried that, you know, it's a 75 cents a pound more in cost. Um, a bit of good news. Uh, we found a wonderful feed, and I, I've still got a bag of conventional feed we're working through with these birds, but as soon as that bag's gone, they're going on to a new feed, and those of you in Texas might want to see if this is available around you, but I got it at a place that has quite a few locations. It's called Russell Feed and Supply, and uh, it's a chick, you know, their chicken feed is made by a company called Texas Natural Feeds. I believe I've seen them featured in Acres Magazine. Anyway, they have non-GMO, non-soy feed, so there's no GMO and no soy And uh, the, the, the bags are about $25 a bag, $24.25 to $25.75, depending on what you're buying. They have broiler, chick starter, layer, and scratch available. And they, have, and they actually have broiler starter and broiler grower uh, with different proteins uh, counts. And um, it's made mostly with uh, peanut meal. So peanut meal, it's uh, peanut meal, sorghum grain, oats, brewer's yeast, fish meal, Probiotics, dimitaceous earth, and vitamin and mineral premix. Um, and it's awesome. It has a 50%, stand, uh, 50% increase in vitamin content over standard commercial grown feed. And I've got one bird out there that looks like he has a leg problem. I'm not sure if he's one of the birds that got hurt when we moved the, the smaller tractor or if he actually has a leg pro problem from fast growth. I'm tempted to tomorrow just start feeding him this new feed and just throw that other bag of feed aside and... I don't know, use it to chum catfish or something. Uh, because, again, I'm not trying to run a profitable operation with this. I'm trying to find out the best way to do this for homesteading use. So that's uh, that's that's part of the plan, I guess, so to speak. Um, next up, I want to talk to you guys about um, the fact that we're going to need a livestock guardian dog. It's pretty much what I've decided. To, if, if we had a coon come in right now, we could lose all those birds. We really could. Um, we, we don't really have many problems like that around here. Uh, I did lose some geese this year to predators, which I found outstanding because I had geese when I was a kid, and there was no predator that was going to mess with them. I mean, they they would fight off just about anything. Uh, these Toulouse, I, I picked because they're known as being gentle, and, and they are. Uh, too gentle for their own good. They'll go after Max, and they'll bite him and hiss at him and stuff, and since he's real passive, he'll he'll walk away. But they go after Charlie, and Charlie just looks at him like, are you crazy? He doesn't care, and as soon as he makes a move toward them, they run. Um, so we had some Chinese geese when I was a kid. They were Chinese, African mixes. I don't know what they were, big-ass geese. 
And uh, they basically slept on the ground, except in the winter when they were cold, they would go into the chicken house, and nothing ever bothered them. We had foxes, stray dogs, everything. Uh, that doesn't work here. Now, they were in on my west pasture, and there's a damaged fence, and I think whatever got in got through that, because otherwise I have five-foot-high barbed wire fence all around the property. Uh, so the chickens are in a more protected area, but we're going to need a livestock guardian dog. And I'm having to convince the wife that it's okay to have a dog that doesn't sleep at the foot of the bed. She anamorphizes and she wants all the dogs inside. So I'm having to make peace with the wife right now that we need a livestock guardian dog. And uh, that dog is going to live outside and protect animals. And that he'll be happy because he likes doing that. That's what those dogs do. Um, Pyrenees are known as being a great livestock guardian dog. But the heat here is, is pretty, pretty tough in the, in the, in the summer. Um, I'd like from audience members your suggestions for a livestock guardian dog for North Texas because we need to start looking for one, find a good one, and training him up right. Uh, it's important to me that this dog be a good community member, though, uh, and what I mean by that is he not be a threat to my dogs, uh, to my other dogs, uh, which usually is not a problem. Livestock guardian dogs generally accept everybody that's part of the group, but strangers be damned because they're in danger if they come inside, and that's... That's what we're going to need is a good livestock guardian dog to make a lot of what we're doing around here easier. Uh, next, the chickens, the egg-laying flock of chickens, is laying lots of eggs. We're trying to figure out where they're laying some of their eggs, though, because they went from about nine eggs a day uh, to like five or six. And we found eggs in various locations. There's, Josiah even put out a video where he showed one of the eggs that the chickens laid in the sun, and it actually cooked. It had only been there for like half a day, and when he broke it, the yolk was soft, but the white was completely, it was like soft-boiled egg just from sitting in the sun. So God knows where these things are laying. Um, we're also having problems where I put in the contour garden beds. One of the beds they've harmed really bad, uh, and we've got them in the garden a lot now because I my intention was to allow them to free-range on my one-acre paddock where they really have nothing they can harm, and they were quite useful out there. Um People believe that heavy breeds like Rhode Island Reds and, uh, you know, sex link pullets, uh, won't fly over a five foot fence. They fly over a five foot fence. And I have, in my own anamorphizing way, felt bad for them and not wanted to clip their wings. They're getting their wings clipped this week and they're going to spend most of their time, uh, over in the, uh, the west pasture where they can scratch and eat and dig and chase bugs and not be a problem, uh, with the geese. Uh, I mentioned yesterday, the geese fly. Um, not so much that they're a problem, and they seem to have stopped doing it except for one, so I'm not going to clip their wings right away. Uh, if they continue to make it over the fence, it, I, what I will do is clip the wing of the problem child, so to speak. Uh, but as they get heavier bodied, it should not be as much of an issue. Uh, like Ben was saying yesterday, big geese like Africans and Chinese and all, you, you never have this problem. Um, I'm pretty impressed with how lithe these guys are. My long-term plan for these geese is for them to become a breeding group, and I may have to bring in some new birds next year um, because I did lose the three, and I've only got five of them left. Um, we really like the geese. I mean, they're probably our favorite animal on the homestead other than the dogs. Uh, but, man, do they grow. I, I, You know, you could do a dozen of these things a year, and in – Eight to ten weeks, almost 100% on grass, you've got 12-pound birds you're dressing out. I, I, I don't know anything else like that. Um, and if you like goose, and I do, it's, it's pretty good. Um, 
they're also pretty easy to breed and they, they you know they mate for life type of thing and 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 so if you have a, a flock a mixed flock you're going to get eggs you can incubate them and they're very sustainable that way because chicks are or goslings are expensive i think i paid 113 bucks for eight goslings so and and the place i bought them from wasn't going to negotiate because they're like we don't have that many left this year and we know nobody else has any geese were hard to come by So I think there's a cottage industry there for the right pe person, and I think that the way to do it sustainably, economically, is to raise your own goslings every year, to uh, you know, take the eggs and incubate them. And I, I think that you know we might run a dozen. Uh, a dozen is a goose a month. I'm not. I like goose, but you know, I mean, 12 geese is a lot of geese, especially if you process them all about the same time. I would say this: geese are a lot smarter than chickens. I think it's very important if you're raising geese for slaughter that you separate the geese you're going to slaughter from the geese that you're not going to slaughter and don't let them bond. Um, when they lost three of their compadres, they were very upset for a couple weeks. And they, they, you know, they, they imprinted on us and they follow us around for a few days. They were like puppy dogs. They did not want to be alone. They were scared. Uh, and they very much wanted to kind of fill the void, I think. So um, I know people might say I'm anamorphizing, but based on my experience, if I had 12 geese set aside for slaughter, I would put them in a, a rotational grazing pattern away from the other flock, the, the permanent flock, and I would slaughter them completely out of sight of the other geese, and I would also um, do them all on the same day so that they don't have the whole you know, where'd my buddy go scenario, because they do form a very tight bond, even as goslings, very quick, and it, it's very evident that they have that bond. The one problem child that flies out of the gate, usually what happens is in the morning I'll let them out, and they'll run through the pasture, and they'll flap their wings, and they'll get a little air here and a little air there. Well, every once in a while, he'll get some air and come over the fence. And when he does that, he immediately turns around, and he's like, huh, huh, he starts freaking the hell out. Because all his, he, he, he doesn't get, if I can fly over, I can fly back over. And he doesn't quite have the runway to get up off the ground either going back the other way. So I don't know if he could. And if, if I'm not right there, he'll go walking around and find me. And I'll be over by the ponds or something. And all of a sudden he's over there like, rrr, rrr, rrr. and basically he's like, I, I don't know what to do. And then I'll just walk back over and let him in the gate. He'll follow me because he wants to be with his, with his, with his, with his gaggle. And uh, so that's part of what we've learned this year. Uh, my biggest weakness on the property is water. And as I look more and more at how I can put real ponds in, I realize more and more it's probably not going to happen with the subsurface rock that we have here. With that being the case, I think there's one area, coincidentally, and it's in the lowest part of the west pasture, uh, that I can get a pond in. I'll have to bring in a big machine, but I think it can be done. Given that that is the case, um, that makes that a great area for the birds, uh, for the geese. And I might add ducks next year. Um, sometimes I think about adding ducks and getting rid of the chickens, the laying chickens, and going with duck eggs. Um, but I like chicken eggs better than duck eggs. Just saying. So we'll probably keep them. But uh, that, that's going to be like kind of their area to wander. And uh, water-wise, though, what I'm going to do is, you know, part of it's what I'm doing now with the aquaponic system. That water can all be used. That's very fertile water. And at times where we have a good reserve of water built up, we can use that water for irrigation. All of the places where the water overflows 
I control the rate of the overflow by using a piece of PV, three-quarter PVC pipe and a hose bib. So you can turn the hose bib up and you get higher flow, you turn it back down, you get a lower flow. Well, what's nice about that is you can go to any one of them, turn it off, hook a garden hose up to it, close the other one so you get full pressure, open the one with the hose on it, and pump that water anywhere. Now, true, I need energy for it, but again, backup power for a, a, a pond pump uh, for you know a day's worth of energy is, is not really that difficult. And the system will probably get a much more scaled-back small pump to run on, on, on backup power if the power goes off. So that it will fail over to a smaller pump. Uh, and I, I pretty much know how to plumb that in already as well. Uh, the key will be creating a system where it automatically shifts, and it probably won't. I'll probably just have to, oh, power's out, go out and, and switch it to the lighter lighter duty pump. Uh, there may be a way to automate that. Once I get everything ready to go, I'll let Steve look at it. Uh, but So part of it is expanding this aquaculture system. Again, in a neighborhood of 4,500 gallons, plus once we get up the rain gutter and plumb that into the tank, we've got a 1,500-gallon cistern tank sitting up on two feet of uh, concrete block. So that's another 1,500 gallons. So now you're looking at, what, five, 6,000 gallons of water that's immediately usable for irrigation. And that's a pretty good asset. The pool holds 20,000 gallons of water. I'm not really worried about having enough water for us to survive on. I'm really not if, we, if it comes to that. Yes, it's chlorinated and all, but, you know, chlorine's easy to get rid of, and I got a Berkey. So I got 24,000 gallons of water sitting out there to be used for cooking, bathing, and drinking if necessary. And if you can keep the pool up and manage and running, you know, and you don't need it for drinking, the pool can basically serve as a good way to bathe. So I'm not too worried about that. I'm more worried about water for the land. Uh, Swale's going in with the Jeff Watton workshop, and I need to get in touch with him. I'm not hearing back from him <laughs> at the rate that I want to, and I know he's a busy guy, but I want to get this workshop set in stone for you guys um, so we can run that out here, and I think that's going to be awesome. A note on the uh, October workshop. When you guys get your uh, emails to sign up, those of you on the waiting list for it, and I don't think there's any point anybody adding their names to the waiting list for that workshop at this point, um, and I'll talk about what that means for Perma Ethos in a minute, um, because there's like I think 60 people on the list, and I'm going to take 25 to 30 for the workshop. But one of the things you're going to notice is I'm looking for people on their form when they sign up to indicate if they would be willing, if they're camping on site, to park their vehicle and leave their vehicle for the duration of the workshop. For the people willing to do that, we'll have Josiah receive you basically and give you a parking spot in the front of our house instead of out in our pasture. If I can get, you know, five, ten people to do that, then I can up the head count to 30 because my biggest limitation is vehicles on my property and not damaging my land with them uh, and, and minimizing the in and out to begin with and basically saying there's our little car sitting there and we'll park it so we can get out in and out easily and if somebody really needs to run up to the convenience store or something like that, take my keys and use my car. And have at least one trip a day, maybe, you know, the truck will roll with, you know, four or five people can jump in. One or two runs a day for people, you know, we, we can provide that. Or somebody that is doing the in and out thing maybe can do that for other people. If we can work together on that, instead of 20, I can do 30. And that means, I, it, it, yeah, we can make a little more money on it. But the big deal is I can let more people come. Because I'm telling you, the demand for when we do these things is huge. And we'll be doing a fun and skills one probably in November. We'll start ferreting the details out. My my wife and I will start figuring that out this week and get that one. And I think what I'll do is I'll give priority to people for the that one 
that do do not get to come to the one in October. I'll let you know first shot for people to come that haven't come already, and then if if that doesn't fill it, then we'll 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 go back into the the people that have been to the first one or two and and say now these spots are available. So uh, that's the only way I know to be fair. What this means for Perma Ethos is this though. Um, I don't want to sound arrogant, and I know I can at times. And, and guys, the reason I sound arrogant at times is just because I'm confident in what I say. And, and I'm really not an arrogant person. I, I'm, I'm actually uh, pretty humble. And if, if you've ever shook my hand and said something nice to me, you'll see real quick how humble I, I really actually am as, as a person with my ego. Um, and, and maybe it's why it's taken me so long to really realize this, but I have the ability to put people into these workshops and events and seminars that I don't think anybody else out there has. I think there's some bigger names that can draw people, but when it comes to putting people there through marketing, there's, there's you know, Ben Falk just told me yesterday, I think four people in his last PDC are from this audience. I didn't even go or promote it. They just know about him from me, and it's like they were there because of you. Uh, Jeff Lawton sold over 400 online PDCs through the TSP community. I bet he didn't sell that many to everybody else. Um, but the permaculture is only one piece of this. There's the whole wilderness skills thing. Um, I don't know if dirt time's still going on, but that was a great event with like 200 people. You know, 200 people that was all you know trapping and outdoor stuff and tr tracking and, and and we can run events like that. Well, if we build perma ethos. And Perma Ethos has 50 or 60 acres of common area. We could set aside a couple areas, uh, acres that are for campers, for big events like that. How much revenue does that bring in? When we do something simple like an urban permaculture design workshop and we have 50 people that want to come to it, we could take them all. We can charge a fair price. And we can employ members of the community to cook and provide foods and do things and make a profit and put that into the community. I mean, I, I'm really starting to understand the true power of our TSP community and what it can really lead to. Um, and so on some levels, it's a little bit scary because I don't want to go back to Jack, the corporate guy. I, I don't really want to. In fact, you know, the... Perma Ethos uh, Corporation, uh, all I want to do is put it together, get it up and running, and when the board needs to make a decision on what happens, that's it. I'm not going to be making phone calls and striking deals to build more of them. I think when we decide the one's working good enough, it's a working model. If we want to build another one, we do it the exact same way. We just do it the exact same way and just, boom, we're going to do it over here. Boom, we're going to do it over here. And I think in time we can do that. I, I think we don't get greedy with it either. I think if somebody says, we want to use your model and want some advice from you, here's our blueprint, right on the desk, go ahead, do it. But I don't think, I think without the TSP association, I don't think any of them can be as successful as we can be, at least initially. There's something here, guys, that's, it's, it's, it's hard for me to accept that I created. And I really didn't. We co-created it, and that's that's important. But, I mean, it's hard for me to accept that I'm like the leader of this thing. Um, you know, this is something a redneck started in a Jetta in 2008. That's what this is. That's what TSP is. A redneck, a $30 Samsung recorder, and a or Sony recorder, and a $20 busted-ass Plantronics headset. That's, that was the good gear. The first thing was a busted-ass 
little cheap video camera that had an MP3 recorder. I sat in my lap for the first four or five episodes. Um, and this is what it's turned into. 85,000 people a day. And that's that number's still growing. And we've been able to build a very successful life. And I, I hope that I've said enough times, and I will hope that I will always say enough times, thank you so much. Every person in this audience, I don't care if you're a paying member or not, the fact that you listen is huge. Because trust me, there ain't no 85,000 paying listeners for this show. And if there was, I don't know if I could even you know handle that, honestly. I don't, I don't know that I want that level of success out of that program. But it's, it's, it, there's, like, there's this certain level of business success that we have. And we live a good life. And we're able to you know do things like on a Thursday afternoon, go, I've had enough, 2.30, let's hit the pool. And that's awesome. But it's not as awesome as what we could really be doing with it. What I'm starting to realize is that as someone that's now the head of a, of a movement, that if that movement has power, that I have a greater responsibility to use that to further what all of us want. And I think what most of us want is our country back. We want a nation that respects the rights of everybody. We want people to stop stepping on each other. We want people to be free to live and breathe and act their own way as long as they don't harm another person. And let me tell you what. I don't think we're getting it. I don't think we're getting it the way a lot of us want it. We want the country itself back. And I think a lot of people in the country have decided they don't want to give it back. And I don't just mean the people at the top. I mean the, the average sheep doesn't want to give it back yet. They're, they're happy in the matrix. They're happy there. And not everything about this matrix is bad. The overall result is soul-crushing. But there are some good things. You probably drive a car. You probably prefer it to walking. The matrix provides the car. Because the Matrix just isn't the government, it's it's the corporations, it's the whole mess. You know, the Matrix provides the road. I know the purest libertarian goes, the Matrix doesn't have to provide the road. I agree, but they do for right now. And if we set up perma-ethos, if the power comes there, it will come from the Matrix. Right? I mean, can we do it without it? Maybe. Maybe we should. I don't know yet. But if we want Internet access, that's going to come from the Matrix. I don't think any of us are willing to do without that. I can't run a business without it. You couldn't listen to me without it. So part of winning a battle like this is to understand the methods of your enemy and be better with them than they are. So the propaganda machine tells the sheeple every day, preppers are evil. But the anti-propaganda machine, which is myself, every prepper, blogger, and podcaster out there, says, here's what we're actually saying. And we find people we can pull out of the matrix every day. One here and one there. They have 300 million. We pull a million out. It's a, I'll call that a win. And I think we've pulled out more than a million at this point. Not TSP, but all of us, the whole community together. But we're not getting it back. Not anytime soon. And it'll probably crash and burn in different ways before we even ever get it back. And the crashing and burning might make it worse. But the solution is to take it back for yourself, to provide as much of what you need for your happiness on your own. But I don't know if you've checked it out, but doing it alone is hard. 
And for every person like me that can do it with a podcast or a different kind of business or something like that and create their own little homestead and have exactly what they want alone, there's a hundred that can't. They either don't have the talent or the opportunity or one reason or another, they just can't get it done. And to soften that entry and then tie them into a community, that's awesome. And that's what I want. That's what I want this community to turn into. I want it to be, again, it's this, this bubble. This bubble of freedom. Inside here. Inside this ethos. We live by our own rules. Which are, if you don't hurt anybody, we don't care. But to have a mechanism that allows us to coexist with this matrix... Because in spite of what some people say, it's not going away. And it could get better or it could get worse, but I'm not willing to wait. And I think maybe in time we could make dozens of these bubbles, and maybe these bubbles will begin to grow and to merge. And people will start to ask, if they can do that, why can't we do that? And if that happens, great. And if it doesn't, I don't care. I'm creating my ethos with the people that want to come along and do it with me. And if somebody says, well, I have a better way to do it, God bless you, Godspeed, go do it. But if you don't do it with me, I'll do it alone. Excellent! Go! Do it! But I think you're wrong. Great! Prove it! Go do it! I'm doing my thing right here. You go do your thing over there. Maybe it'll be awesome and we'll both be great. Maybe you'll be right. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe... I don't know. But I know that we now have an opportunity to do something I didn't realize. And I think that this community idea is just one thing. There's an opportunity to take the TSP brand and TSP community and radically change the nation, maybe the world for the better. And to do so the way nobody seems to want to do anymore. By acting. Not by fighting. Don't fight the system. The system is irrelevant to what we do here. To find isolated pockets where the system will leave you alone for the most part, use the system's own apparatus as a shield, as a bubble, and create that world for ourselves and for our children so that they'll have it when we're gone. I've said many times I think that the society around us is going to crumble But what encourages me is how many people doing things like this today have actually, for the first time I know of in history, begun the rebuilding before the collapse. That's what I've been doing for over five years now. The rebuilding before the collapse. Because the building is in the hearts and the minds of the individual. The person that says, yeah, the world might be going for hell in a handbasket, but the world is awesome. The world is still awesome. And it'll be here after we're all long dead and gone. And I'm going to get the most awesomeness I can out of this while I'm here. And I'm going to do it in a way that's not going to damage the potential for my children and their children to have the same thing. And I have no aggression toward anybody. But if you harm me, my family, or my community, you are on the wrong side of the line. And I will rise up and fight back. But only if you aggress. That is one of the most powerful ideas in the world. 
mean you no harm. I mean you no threat. I'll coexist with you. But don't harm me. Don't harm my family. Don't harm my children. And don't harm my neighbors. That's an ethos. That's why I chose the name. I know I'm going to hear a lot from you guys wanting to know more. I'm going to tell you as I have it. I'm probably going to set up a little website with a little blog on it to post updates on just for Permaethos. And I'll probably create a little mailing list on there as well. And I'll probably email everybody that's already sent me an email from the, you know, I want to be a leasee side and say subscribe over there so I can push out, make it easy instead of sending a dozen emails every five minutes because if I send too many, it upsets the ISP because um, I, I didn't know it was going to grow this fast when it did. Um, well, stay tuned for that. And it probably won't be fancy or anything. It'll probably just be a plain Jane WordPress blog with a little uh, email opt-in. But uh, I'll, I'll keep updates going on that as well, and I'll bring updates here. Uh, but I don't want to turn TSP into the, the Perma Ethos infomercial channel. I, you know, I don't want to do that. So uh, it, this is probably more about it than you're going to hear in the next month in one, one fail swoop and gulp. But I am beginning to understand the true power of this community, and I'm, I'm beginning to get a better understanding of my responsibility to this community to be a good steward of not just my interaction with you guys and taking care of you and bringing you good content, but to be a good steward of that power of you because we all have a little piece of it, and collectively we have a lot more. And it is my responsibility. And on that note, I've been drugged into some dogfights lately, and I meant what I said at the beginning. Unless it's directly harmful to myself or my community, I'm done with them. I'm done with them. The Chris Dwayne thing, I had to do it, guys. I know some of you didn't like it. I had to. It was a direct assault on my business and a direct assault on a partner's business. And I don't let a partner down. I don't let a partner down. I don't let a partner down. And if you're considering partnering with me on this next business venture, remember that. But yeah, the dogfighting, it's done. Dealing with the ass clowns that, that are haters on my blog, it's done. I'm not even going to do it anymore. I'm either going to let the comments stand if it's reasonable and just an ass clown comment and just ignore it and let you guys talk, talk deal, deal with it, uh, community police, so to speak. Or if it's really an obnoxious comment, I'm just going to delete it and ban the son of a gun. I, I don't have time for it anymore. Jake, you sent me a video on this. I'll put a link to the video Jake sent me for those of you that didn't see it on Facebook or Twitter yet. It's my own words. It's my own advice. I did an episode of Five Minutes with Jack over a year ago. Um, it's not the video. He sent me a video from a different guy. But it's my own advice, and I hadn't been taking it. I'm going to take it from now on, guys. Those of you that have spoken up on this, you've been hurt. Um, I'm taking you to heart. And I think you're right. And the biggest thing that this video, if you watch it, says is every minute you spend dealing with a jackass is a minute that you could have spent helping someone who deserves your time. Well, I think that that's very, very wise words. And it's funny that sometimes you have to hear your own words from somebody else so that you'll listen to yourself. <laughs> But I, I make a commitment to you guys that that's what I'm going to be doing from now on. Anyway, with that, I hope I've given you a lot to be excited about today. I hope I've taught you a few things uh, about uh, some of the projects and stuff that we're doing. And you've picked up at least one thing. If you learn one thing here every day, it's probably worth the cost of admission. And uh, with that, it's just been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show me.